0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and welcome to The Daily Beast's The New Abnormal. I'm a left wing pundit and an editor at large at The Daily Beast. We're here to have fun sharp conversations with some of the smartest people in media, politics, and science that help make what's happening in the country and the world clearer. Our world has been turned upside down. On The New Abnormal, we'll talk about the people who got us into this mess and figure out how we get ourselves out of it.
2: And I'm producer Jesse Cannon, and I'm here to make sure everything doesn't go too far off the rails. While we have fun discussions about our world gone mad... And why I take that duty seriously, ourselves, not so much. Today we have a jam-packed episode with interviews with Senator Mark Warner, Tommy Marcus, a.k.a. the meme maker Quentin Quarantino, and UK podcaster Ian Dunn. But first up, we're going to have the Daily Beast, Jay Michelson, on to talk about Merrick Garland, along with all the stuff that's happening in the Supreme Court today.
1: Hi, Jay Mendelson. <laughs> <No>, Michaels, Jesus <laughs> Christ. Jay Nobody Michaelsen. overdoing me? <laughs>
3: Jay <laughs> Do you know how my ancestors paid for this name? <laughs> uh,
1: we have we have two Hebrews Hosting the new abnormal today.
3: That's, we're going for a lot of extra diversity. (laughs) Diversity. We need more Jews Jews in media. That's
1: right. That's right. Are you from a reformed Jewish family, perhaps?
3: I grew up conservative. I was a nice Jewish boy.
1: See, I grew up Unitarian. We're good.
3: My partner's Unitarian. We actually had a Unitarian wedding.
1: It's the best because it's not anything.
3: It's whatever. (laughs) It's all good. You know what you get when you cross a Jehovah's Witness with a Unitarian? What? Someone who knocks on your door for no reason at all.
1: (laughs) 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 So let's talk about someone who's not feeling very unified. Today, the Supreme Court decided that Trump has to give his taxes to Cy
3: Vance. That's right. This was like the final "nino, Ninor Ninor to Donald Trump's years-long effort to conceal his tax returns. This was kind of, it was a Hail Mary to begin with, because the court decided last summer that he enjoys, Trump enjoys no special protection. So this was just like if you or I, you know, had our tax returns subpoenaed and we went to all the way to the Supreme Court. And they would also dismiss us with an unsigned one-sentence order.
1: Can you explain why, what the timing of this was?
3: Yeah. I mean the, the the mystery and you know it's kind of reading the tea leaves we'll never really know but the mystery is why it took them several months to reach this decision it was pretty clear that Trump was going to lose. He had, you know, not a leg really to stand on. You know, the word on the street is they might've been waiting for the impeachment drama to play itself out. Uh, This has nothing to do with that, but it's possible that the court just felt like, you know, it could somehow affect the integrity of that process if it had any integrity in the first place. So, but the timing now should be immediate. I mean, this was the final appeal and, you know, Trump's lawyers will always come up with something, but there should be no reason why the grand jury won't get these financial records tomorrow.
1: But they should be able to just get them from the IRS. It's not like they have to wait and try to get them from... Jay Seculo
3: or someone, right? No, that's right. He's out of the picture, thankfully. Actually, these are for uh, financial documents that are at Mazers, the his accounting firm. Okay, uh, including tax returns, but also, and maybe even more importantly, a host of business documents. Basically, what we all know happened was, you know, Trump inflated the value of his business when it suited him, which is in order to get on the Forbes list and also to get loans from Deutsche Bank, which is maybe even more important. And then he, you know, de- deflated that the his his uh, his worth in order to save on taxes. So that's illegal. And the, the sets of documents won't match. So what he told Deutsche Bank is clearly a lie. And they gave him, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of credit on the basis of that lie. So not only is that insurance fraud and, and uh, bank fraud, but that could affect those loans. And how? I just filed my Daily Beast piece on this. You know, this is like the new episode of the Trump reality show, really the new season. Sorry, this is like the season premiere. It's like now comes all of these petty humiliations, right? So, Deutsche Bank has already kind of called in the credit, basically. Trump doesn't have the money. It's not really clear where this amount of money is going to come from.
1: Can he borrow it from Jared?
3: (laughs) 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 Unfortunately, you know, he's also not the financial wizard that he makes himself out to be.
1: Wait! jared but jared made 200 trillion dollars last
3: year don't fall for the ization. i mean he's cute but he's not really that smart
1: there's no way <laughs> there is no world in which no is gonna let you say <laughs> <laughs> uh,
3: my whole pitch for this gig is that i'm the sassy gay friend like that's what i have to offer in this interaction
1: <laughs>
2: Okay. <laughs> I, 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 I have a feeling, just like uh, the last time when you were our first guest, that we had
3: to beep. That there's
2: there's some coming
3: here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so tell me why Jared isn't as rich as he tells us he is.
3: So he does hold a lot of property, but the key with all of these kind of real estate companies and Kushner is just is one of these is basically leverage. I mean, you never really you never want to own more you know just cut property outright because you could be using that property to borrow money for more property. So all of the major real estate companies, you know, Durst related all of them are leveraged out, right. which means they've already basically used all of these buildings as collateral. So Kushner's no different. I don't I don't know where you know Jared Kushner could come up with 600 million dollars just from his back pocket, maybe by selling some of those assets, right. but again, they're not really meant to be sold because imagine if you had, you know, a million dollar mortgage on your million dollar house, you wouldn't come out with a lot of cash.
1: Right, that makes sense. So now they get the taxes. Cy Vance gets them, and then he can put Donald Trump in jail forever and ever.
3: <laughs> Dream on. No, not quite. Uh, first of all, just to like you know temper expectations even more, we may will probably never see these documents because uh, really? they're going. What? You don't think they're going to leak? Well, they might leak, but grand juries—you know—it's not like the Trump White House. <laughs> it's not just like constantly leaking all the time to Swin and whoever you know, Swin is working with. Maybe Swin can get the documents. Yeah, we've got to get no, I mean, grand jury—you know—documents are meant to be sealed. They're meant to be totally secret. You know, there are some cases where they do leak out at some point. Syvance Vance is not like the kind of, you know, lawyer who just like leaks stuff through someone, I'd be surprised if we actually do see most of this. And remember from the tax returns point of view, we already got what the times had last fall. So, you know, it is possible that some of this may leak out, but we shouldn't think like it's not going to be another you know, Times special section with all of these documents in it. Will he go to jail for like the rest of his life? Probably no. Is it possible that this would lead to criminal charges that would carry jail time? I would say that's pretty likely. Uh, And we could have a grand jury indictment fairly soon.
1: Wait, so he could go to jail?
3: Yeah, no, you know, you can't, cheat this badly all the time and avoid avoid jail time. I mean, it's some of it, you know, a lot of these kind of white-collar crimes are basically settled, and they're settled out for large financial settlements. Right. You know, in this case, I'm not sure that Cy Vance is like interested in settling with Donald Trump, even if Donald Trump could afford the fines that he would have to pay, which I don't think he can.
1: Wait. So Trump really could because, you know, my husband is a big fan of Trump is going to die in jail. And I always tell him that we in America don't jail our presidents, no matter how sleazy they are. But you really think this is a possibility?
3: Well, I think it's useful to think that to notice that we were not jailing the president. We're jailing a crook who lied on his taxes and his business forms and his insurance forms. Like we're jailing, we're jailing a criminal. So this is not connected, let's say, to the impeachment. It's not connected to any official. It's not connected to Russia. It's not affected, connected to anything. You know, connected to his job as president. This is old stuff from the Trump organization lying all the time.
1: Can we talk about Pennsylvania? The Great State, the Keystone State.
3: I think maybe one reason maybe I surprised you a little bit by being having, having a little optimism yes. around the legal process is I actually feel like the courts have done a pretty good job enduring this assault on our democracy yeah, right, for the else. last four years. Yeah, And this is an example of it. So, you know, Trump lost 70 some odd election challenges. You know, and all of these were basically the same con, right? I mean, what's he doing with his taxes and his net worth? He's just lying about reality. He's saying reality is A when it's actually B. He's going to go to CPAC The CPAC conference on Sunday and say, I'm the presumptive nominee for 2024. I'm in charge of the Republican Party. These things may or may not be true, but certainly him saying it as a reality TV star doesn't make it so. But there is this thing called actual reality. And that's why I have a little bit of optimism both around whether it's the Supreme Court or now this grand jury process. So the same day that the Supreme Court said that uh, Trump does have to turn over these financial records, they finally put like the 20th nail in the coffin of the of the challenges to the election lawsuits. Uh, yeah, it was 6-3 these challenges were moot. Again was sort of Justice Thomas didn't say that Trump should actually prevail in these challenges just that there's actually still a live issue around how the judges in Pennsylvania kind of changed the election law.
1: I'm surprised Gorse.
3: Yeah, I am also surprised. I'm not at all surprised about Thomas. Right.
1: <laughs> Thomas it seems like he always takes the worst opinion. I you know, I am actually slightly
3: sympathetic to the dissent in this particular case. So I'm not sympathetic because this case is clearly moot. The election is over. But it is true that we just left this major issue kind of dangling on the table, which the question was how these courts are interpreting the Pennsylvania Constitution and whether the way that they... Changed the law to account for the COVID pandemic was the right way or not. I think it was, but I also think it was kind of a live question. But the thing with it, the thing is with the courts, it has to be a live case or controversy and it's not, the election is over. And this one, you know, I think, I don't think anyone thought that Trump was going to win and he didn't, he lost seven to two. Uh, but it's still, again, yet another nail in the coffin of reality kind of winning out over reality television.
2: We're, Jay, we're lucky to be joined by you today because it's in the middle of uh, Merrick Garland's confirmation, and you used to clerk for Merrick Garland. What have you been seeing today?
3: We expected this this uh, hearing to be mostly boring, and it mostly was, and I think that is mooring in a good way, especially after the shenanigans at the Senate you know, over the impeachment period. There was a remarkable moment right at the very end responding to uh, Senator Booker. Cory Booker kind of pushed Judge Garland a little bit on racial justice and criminal justice, and Judge Garland used to work at Department of Justice. He's kind of come through the criminal justice system. And I think there are some on the left who have a concern about that, that this is someone who's maybe too invested in modern policing or or, uh, or mass incarceration, for example. So uh, Senator Booker was kind of pushing him on that to really uh, take more of a stand. And Judge Garland actually visibly, his voice was shaking and, and he told his own personal story about how his grandparents fleeing Nazi persecution came here and found a home here and this country welcomed them in, and it was, Judge Garland said, his own personal sense of responsibility, hoping to do the best job he could to honor that and to pay that back. And I think, you know, as speaking as a as a rabbi here for a moment, uh, which is one of the other hats that I wear, you know, we've seen so much bad American Judaism lately where it's just turned into like waving the flag, whether it's the Israeli flag or whatever, and taking these kind of very hardcore, nationalistic-y, Trump-y kind of Points of view, it was so refreshing to kind of see a public figure articulate the American Judaism that I actually love, uh, which is that understanding the Jewish experience of marginalization, making us hopefully more sensitive. Uh, toward other forms of oppression, including around racial justice. And it was just one of these really, you know, for me, a moving moment. And I did, I had worked for, for Judge Garland. He definitely showed more emotion in that two minutes than during the year that I clerked (laughs) for him uh, in DC. You know, he's a very, very smart guy and it was hard to clerk for in a good way because, you know, some judges kind of just rubber stamp what you write as a clerk, but Judge Garland uh, was never that way. Uh, He always read up at least as much on the cases as, as the clerks did. And so he was known for being kind of meticulous and tough and in a good way not you know not mean or anything but just you really needed to know your stuff so to see him show that other side, that kind of human side, I think, uh, made the confirmation hearing a little bit more real.
2: So a lot of people are concerned, though, how hard he will go on prosecuting the Capitol insurrectionists. As somebody who worked under him, how do you feel about which way that wind might blow?
3: Yeah, I think one of the notable things about Judge Garland's resume is that he's the guy who put away Timothy McVeigh. He led that investigation. So this is familiar territory for him. Um, I did watch the, the hearing this morning. Uh, he was asked about that. that. was the first question he was asked about. and and many senators asked him about that. There were some Republican opportunists to say, well, what about Antifa and don't forget them too. And yeah, it was 6-3.
1: And what about Chuck Grassley?
3: (laughs) Do you want want me to go to that now (laughs) or talk about it? I mean, from the sublime to the ridiculous. I mean, he literally said, in in case people are not aware of this little trivial moment, he literally said with Judge Garland sitting right there, yes, it's true, I never gave you a hearing, but at least I didn't go through your high school yearbook and make your wife leave your committee hearing in tears. Right. Referring to Democrats investigating a rape yeah. allocation from Brett I- Kavanaugh. It's like they were just doing going through the yearbook just for the hell of it. Like there wasn't a rape allocation that they were it was this moment of supreme ridiculousness. And I, I at first I was kind of impressed that Grassley even owned up to like it's true that i ruined your entire career and took away your dream job that you completely deserved and did so on a hypocritical like that's true but then to turn it around and like say that what democrats did with kavanaugh was worse was just appallingly hilarious
1: he's kind of amazing i don't i don't know what's happened with grassley but My favorite Grassley is
3: Grassley
1: fighting with the History Channel on Twitter. That's when he's at his best. I want more of that.
3: Wait, I haven't I haven't followed that at all.
2: Uh, See, my personal favorite is when he hits animals with his car and tweets about it. (laughs) Yeah, that too. Yes. Well,
1: there's also that.
3: Well, he just I feel like a lot of these guys are the Republican, the sort of white old men Republican senators are like trying out various ways of being odious, right? So, like, you could do the Lindsey Graham one where you just kind of slide it in there and say something so offensive and absurd that everyone's scratching their head
1: yes i liked it when he was like why haven't you been to the border Merritt garland
3: (laughs) i think you should go to the border and you'll see drug cartels
1: (laughs) i mean i don't know i guess he has decided that the caravans are like a big fox news messaging point and so he was going to bring them up in the hearing but that was amazing i
4: just
3: love how like the last four years haven't happened from that perspective like we've just picked up exactly where we left off right like migrant caravans drug cartels whoa now it's 2021 and we're saying the same thing that we said in 2016 even though there's a pandemic and a coup that also just happened like it's this amazing like they haven't skipped a beat basically
1: i mean i've been actually really surprised at how Well, Biden's nominees have like sailed through a lot with like pretty large you know, a lot of Republican support. But it seems like the person who's just gonna get the get the knife is gonna be near a tandem. Near
3: a tandem, yeah. Yeah, mean tweets.
2: (laughs) But better watch out for your confirmation hearing, Molly. Yeah,
3: I
1: I think. Yeah, Molly, your chances
3: are I'm sorry, (laughs) but
1: (laughs) God damn it.
3: You've sent a bunch of mean tweets.
1: (laughs) Can you imagine? What would you even like what would you even want me <laughs> for? Like, what could I even do? Like, I guess I could be like ambassador to somewhere. Uh, I was
2: going to say, you'd make a lovely ambassador to the Vatican and replace the Gigriches. So it seems we're going to have another impeachment trial, but this time in New York State over Governor Cuomo being a bully.
1: Is that possible? Can they impeach him over just sheer awfulness and also fudging the nursing home numbers?
3: Yeah, not the awfulness, but I mean, over the fudging the nursing home number, yeah. I mean, I I don't know if that's going to happen, but it's certainly it is a legal possibility.
1: I love it when conservatives are like, do you think DeSantis is bad, but you love Andrew Cuomo, and it's like, mmm.
3: No most progressives don't really.
1: It's like and also you could take de Blasio too. It
3: was probably a mistake for Cuomo to call up, you know, a a state assembly person's wife and threaten her on the phone and yell. I mean, that's probably not a good call, but you know, that's that's what he that's what he did and it is kind of the style. Yeah, it's a weird it'll be an interesting moment if the sort of COVID denial wing of the Republican Party, you know, makes common cause with the progressive wing of the Democrat Party to get rid of the person who they dislike for very different reasons. Um, It could happen. You know, it's. Wow. Who knew Andrew
2: Cuomo would be what makes horseshoe theory a real thing?
3: (laughs) It is. It is kind of that. Even so, they surely don't agree. I mean, Horseshoe, the idea is that they sort of agree on something like, you know, QAnon agrees with like left wing hippies because they both think the government is bad or something. Here, they don't even really agree, right, why they hate Cuomo. But everybody, you know, wants to hate Cuomo. So for different reasons, as you know, for me, I I am a bit of a Cuomo contrarian. As a New York resident, I, I kind of I kind of like the. I don't know if it's is that like racist to, anal- to analogize him to Mussolini because they wrote Italian. Let's just say he has a certain authoritarian streak. <laughs> I feel streak.
1: like Mussolini is not should not be held up as good government. <laughs> I'm
3: going to go out but I'm getting here. the vaccine on time, so like I feel right. <laughs> the mm-hmm. trains are running on time. No, I think I think a lot of what's happening is is sort of there's a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking, but right. now this is a real thing. I mean, this you know if they lied about the nursing home deaths and concealed that they lied about the nursing home death, that's right. So it's like a cover-up of a cover-up. Yeah, that's that's not pretty.
2: Ian Dunn is a British author, political journalist, as well as the
4: host of the Romaniacs
2: podcast.
1: Hi, Ian.
4: Well, hello, hello. What
1: the fuck is wrong with your country?
4: Well, that is a question that would take me a very, very long time to answer. Um, you know what? I mean, the truth is, it's basically sort of the same thing that's wrong with yours, which is okay. that we got lost in a dream of borders of like a politics that's basically about borders. And you can factor in trade in that, you can factor in immigration, but ultimately it came down to a hijacking by a nativist reactionary political force that says everything's going to be all right if you just close all your fucking borders and pretend that the world's simple. Now, you guys have the rather considerable advantage right now of having turned away from that part. So what you should do is look at us. We were like, we were like someone you used to date that is still taking heroin. Like, you know, you're like I'm so fucking glad I left that shit behind because that's where we are right now.
1: I keep reading all of these reports about your coronavirus stuff. What is going on? Like, why can't you get it under control, like we did in Florida? Just kidding. But
4: just- <laughs> yeah, because such a wonderful example you guys have said. <laughs>
1: We've only killed half a million people, whereas you people.
4: <laughs> okay, I think that this comes down to a couple of things. I mean, the, the most important one is we have spent. The last five years, basically since the Brexit vote, denigrating expertise. Basically saying experts don't matter, they have nothing to contribute. What really matters is this thing, the will of the people, which is basically whatever the person in charge happens to think it or whatever (laughs) is useful for them to say on that particular day. Now, once you do that, you create a political culture where when you have scientific advisors saying you need to lock down right now, or else because of exponential growth, we're gonna see more deaths, you have political leaders that ignore them. Now, Boris Johnson, the prime minister, has not been as ignorant on COVID as he was on Brexit. But what he has done is allow himself to get kind of triangulated between public health guys on the one hand and the ones that want to ignore all the evidence on the other. And what that means is for each moment, each of the three lockdowns, every other piece of uh, public health policy, he implements it between two to six weeks too late. And those weeks are the crucial fucking weeks where the virus just explodes in the population. And that's why we are where we are right now.
1: Yeah, that was what I was wondering, because you see a lot of reporting that you guys have a lockdown going.
4: Oh, yeah, man, we've been locked down. I mean, I, I haven't seen another human being apart from the woman that serves me at the supermarket for months now. <laughs> you know? Oh, and, and the missus, obviously, but the missus and I can barely even see each other at this stage. We're, we're like wolves to one another.
1: Yeah, it is is amazing being (laughs) married to someone during lockdown. it is. Now, where are you guys with it? They started vaccinating everyone in England, right? But they're not, they don't have enough for two shots.
4: Well, yeah, they made a punt on that, which at the moment seems like the right punt, which is that you'd be better off giving the first shot to more people than giving two shots to a smaller group of people. Now, when they made that call, the scientists that I was speaking to were pretty divided on which way they would go on that. And it looks at the moment like they probably made the right call. Now, of all the things that there are to criticize the government for, the vaccine rollout so far isn't one of them. I think a lot of that comes down to the NHS as a highly centralized health system is actually very good at exactly this kind of thing. So the rollout of the vaccines at the moment is working very, very well. That is the only, and I mean it literally, it is the only area of policy that these guys have not fucked up. But thank God, <laughs> thank God they haven't. Up.
1: But you have this more contagious variant.
4: Yeah, well, we do. I mean, we're also getting sort of others coming. You know, like a South African variant, which right. is potentially really quite concerning because it, it may not respond, and the vaccines may not respond to it in the same way. Um, I mean, I think I caught. I mean, I got COVID, me and the missus both got COVID last month, and we presume, because most of the country at that stage was getting the more contagious variant, but it was that. Much more contagious, um, it has the massive plus point of it very rarely takes away people's sense of taste or smell. Oh. Like, you know what, I didn't even care about, you know, it was one of those things you heard about that I didn't really think about very much until I got COVID, and then when you do get COVID, you think, well, I can't go out, I can't see my friends or my family, I can't go to a pub or restaurant, the one thing I have is evening meals with wine, the idea of losing even that pleasure just felt like 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 God was being particularly vindictive. So I was very glad to keep
1: it. when the COVID started, and then we'll talk about Brexit, but I just you know I'm like a very neurotic Jew, so I'm obsessed. I mean, I am. I'm not like I'm a very neurotic Jew. Jesse knows this about me, and so I'm obsessed with this idea. I have a friend who's very who lives in the UK, and she was telling me that her mother is very fancy and has this doctor, and the doctor sent them a letter that said if you're over a certain age, no one will treat you in the hospital. You shouldn't even bother going. And if you're, you know, it was like over 65 and you have a pre-existing condition, you're not going to get treatment. And, you know, there was a whole sort of uh, a menu of like how you could get not get treatment in the hospital. Is that still true there?
4: No, that's not true. And um, one of the things that they really found was we're getting a proper backlog right now of non-COVID related health problems that haven't been dealt with. So you don't know, I mean, the the real... The real death toll of this thing, we're not gonna know for years, right? It's about how many people that didn't go get, you know, they got something in their lungs and haven't gone to go get it checked. How many people aren't getting treated for diabetes or for heart conditions right now? Right. That's the, the real long tail death toll of this thing. And they, from the first lockdown to, to the second, that was much, much improved. Lots of messages from the NHS saying, if you've got symptoms of something non-COVID related, do go into hospital, don't be put yeah. off, blah, blah, blah. So no, they, they've been much better on that the second time round. Okay,
1: so now let's talk about Brexit. I was talking to my husband this morning, who could be quite annoying, but is very smart. And he was saying that he thought that it's almost like Britain had put sanctions on itself.
4: Yeah, that's a very good. I might steal that. <laughs> it's yours, baby. No, thank you. No, I'm taking that. I'm taking that. That's basically true. Can, can I like, like let me explain how it's true, but just by talking like really briefly about how the EU started or what it yes, is, right? Please. So, like, you get to the end of the Second World War, and basically Europeans are just looking at each other like. I mean, we've done this twice now and we keep on like nearly destroying the world, so we need right. to come up with a system for not doing this again. And the system that they came up with was like exactly the opposite of what they did after the First World War. First World War, end of it, France, other countries just basically stripped Germany for parts, including its coal industry, its steel industry. When you get to the end of the Second World War, what they say is we're not going to strip it for parts. What we're going to do is we're going to meld coal and steel industries together across the continent. And that's like an old liberal ideal that you see, for instance, in Paine's writing during the American Revolution, that trade is the defense against war. If you can get countries to trade with one another, they're much less likely to go to war. And that goes doubly the case if you can just meld your economies together. The way the Europeans have done this is by two things. One of them is the Customs Union, which takes tariffs, which are sort of taxes on goods when they go over borders, and harmonizes them on the outside and eradicates them on the inside. So if you're the US, you send a banana to Italy, it's 10%. You send it to France, it's 10%. It's 10% wherever you go. But between France and Italy, they pay 0% on anything. There's no checks on any of those goods. Everything moves as if it was one country. The second bar is the single market. The single market is basically the most sophisticated act of cooperation between nation-states in the history of man. It is regulating in a way for each country so that it doesn't have to keep on checking goods coming into its territories. It's essentially saying, if we do this kind of safety check for electrical equipment and cars in Germany, we'll have the same rule in France. And that allows goods to just move around as they like. It also means that Europe could introduce the idea of free movement, which is that you can go and live and stay and work wherever you want on this continent as long as you're a citizen of the continent, which is, I think, a, a degree of liberal accomplishment that stands up there with human rights law for the post-Second sort of Second World War period. Now, Britain's decision was, fuck that, don't want any anything else to do with this thing, so we're just going to pull out, basically because it got upset that there were so many Polish plumbers coming over. I mean, really at the heart of it, it was just like, well, it turns out we don't like Polish plumbers. Fuck knows what Polish plumbers have ever done to the Brits, but they've decided to detonate <laughs> right. their own economy to keep them out. And they pull out. And what that means is you now do get checks at the border going into Europe for your tariffs. You do get it for the regulatory quality of the goods. And Britain's economy for the last 40 years was based on the fact that that would not happen, that goods could move very, very freely for just-in-time production processes wherever they liked on the continent. So sanctions on itself is precisely what Britain has chosen to do once again, because that apparently was the only way that it could stop Polish plumbers coming over. There is no way out of this now, right? I'm of the belief that in about 15 years, if we're smart about it, if liberals and internationalists remain as smart about what they do, we can get back in. You will never talk to anyone sensible who's going to give you a shorter time scale than 15 years. That, that's where we are right. Now. This is it, right? I used to say it with during the last five years, with like American journalists when they're in London. And you'd sit and you, you'd basically drown your sorrows together. You know, they'd talk about <laughs> Trump and I'd talk about <laughs> Brexit. And we're like, look, have <laughs> we fucked ourselves? Like, there's a blah, blah, blah. But each time in those conversations, I was like, look, the thing is, I know that Trump is worse than Brexit. And I, and I mean that. Like, he, he was worse than any single politician I can think of in Britain, including Nigel Farage, who was basically right. like an astray wait, he, in human form.
1: Wait, he's worse than Nigel?
4: He's, he is. I think he is more pernicious I think he's more explicitly racist. Right. I think he, yeah, he's more dangerous and also more megalomaniacal. I mean, he's, he, really, he was the worst human being than Nigel Farage. I mean, believe me, what I've just said is the nicest thing I've ever said about Nigel Farage, which is that he's not literally the worst <laughs> human being on Earth. But he was terrible. But what I was to right. say was, look, no matter how bad it looks for you right now, at least you can change this in relatively quick order. I know there's, you know, a level of political toxicity that remains, but you can change it what Brexit is is trumpism but you're fucking with the the engine room of a country with the structural integrity of the company with its diplomatic status with its political status with its trading networks with its economic uh, framework you are you are really mucking around with the spine of the place the spine of the state so this stuff it will get much much worse before it gets better and it's going to take a long time before we can put it right yeah, sorry, I, I can't do that. I hope you can bring me on here to make feel better about things. Except by thinking yeah, at least we're not going through it. That's the most like.
1: <laughs> I mean, what does the UK think of us?
4: It's a really complicated question.
1: I feel like I spent a lot of time in the UK when I was young, and they always thought we were just sort of dumb.
4: No, 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 no. There's, no, that's, that's, that's just half of it. Right. Remember, this is Britain's attitude towards everyone is a mixture. Of arrogance and insecurity. You know, we're like that guy you knew in high school. You know what I mean? Like he was just, he acted really arrogant, but in fact he was just deeply, tragically insecure and didn't know how to talk to women. It's like that's basically Britain's <laughs> national personality. Fuck me, I hope no one in this country hears the shit I'm saying right now. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but, you know, objectively, this is true. This is, and this is mostly how we look at all other countries, apart from Sweden for some reason, who we think are fucking perfect. God knows why. And so that is the attitude towards the Americans. And we are simultaneously kind of repulsed and tremendously aroused by America, right? So in terms of the repulsion, the classic sort of stuff, like, you know, for anyone, even in the centre, let alone the sort of left of British politics, you know, around capital punishment or school shootings or the abortion debate. We're boorish. I mean, we're
1: just awful. I don't know how you like us, but go on, go on,
4: go on. That stuff is shocking to us. And you're constantly reminded, right, of like you think the Americans are like us and then you you just, you get a, th- usually around religion or abortion design and you're like, oh, fuck right. me. No, you know, that is fucking mad. I don't know how anyone right. thinks that. But then or AR-15s. Just, yeah, well, it, it, it comes almost every day and you know, you feel it as a Brit when you're in America, <laughs> right? Because right. you feel, you feel similar but then you just, you know, even to us, like, uh, the first thing you see when you go to the US is the, the guy at immigration, but they have a gun. And that, to us, is this first moment of like, what the fuck? Why the fuck? What's this guy going to say if my papers are wrong? <laughs> you know, is going to pull that gun? <laughs> like, why would he have a gun? It's just this insane thing to us. The flip side is, you know, we're fucking fascinated even now. It, well, in fact, people were arguably more fascinated than ever by, by Trump, but they were as well by, by Obama. And they have mostly watched the West Wing, you know, so they they still have within them that kind of idealism that America has about itself is also part and parcel of how other countries think about America. So all of that stuff is wrapped up inside of itself. It's definitely not just that the Brits think the Americans are dumb. They do often think that, but then also they kind of want to be them. (laughs) It's it's very complex.
1: Do you know what the schedule is for vaccinations in the UK?
4: Oh, yeah, we're cracking on, man. I mean, with this, no, really. I mean, <laughs> I've right. I, I just got a message from a friend of mine who's 45 and she just got a message to say that she she's lined up for it. You know, they are really cracking on with this now. So on, on the vaccine front, we're looking pretty good. I mean, the, the concern is the nutters in parliament so there's a group called the covid research group a group of tory mps who model themselves after the european research group which is a group of brexit mps basically what this means is whatever they say put whatever word they put before the word research is the subject they're not doing any fucking research (laughs) on (laughs) There, these are the anti lockdown guys. And, and in right. fact, stray into a kind of COVID denialism. And it's, it's like anti it's lockdown skepticism on the shop window. But when you go into the shop that, you know, behind the counter, there's a bit of COVID denialism being churned out as well.
1: This is like Toby Young.
4: Yeah, oh, yeah. I'm so sorry that you know who that is. I really am.
1: <laughs> Can you explain to our listeners who that is?
4: Yeah, in fact, there was a film made of him, How to Lose Friends and Alienate People. He used to be this quite pretty... Yes, blitty, yes. Yeah.
1: he was sort of a socialite. He lived in New York in the 90s. That's how I knew him.
4: Right, and he wrote a pretty... Uh, he, he wrote a good book. I like the book, actually, of, you know, going over to New York and basically not making any friends. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And
1: alienating lots of
4: people. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which is probably the... Experience Of more people than they care to admit. You know, he's been pro Brexit. I mean, I I haven't agreed with him for a very long time. What I wasn't expecting was the degree of deterioration that we saw over COVID of, you know, (laughs) trying to harness this this constant attempt to undermine any kind of public health strategy, which is just, I mean, as a journalist, first and foremost, it is objectively false. Like the information that you're putting out is objectively false. Um, But also, it is frankly catastrophically fucking immoral and yet there is a really there's a fucking industry of this stuff and it's not just columnists today the daily mail very widely read very well-reading government uh, right-wing tabloid was putting out this thing and saying look you've got to open up now you know we've got a vaccine so why don't we open up and this is just punishing you fucking stupid because the truth is britain does another two months of lockdown probably but you know you could open up the schools but keep the rest of the lockdown in place we can we can have the rest of the year and we'll, we'll be largely free but if we end this thing now, when the cases are going down, but the R rate is still not below one, that is not what is going to happen. So you just look at it and you're like, it's almost like the, the COVID research group basically saying, you know what, if we're really quick about it, we can fit in just a fourth wave of COVID before the whole pandemic is over. <laughs> and to be their policy.
1: It is so horrible it is interesting that you guys are worse off than we are because i always thought we'd ultimately be worse off than you were <laughs> so congratulations
4: <laughs> thank you very much that's a very cheering thought for me to, to take from me
1: I do. You know, I always think like the people I know who are British are very, very smart and they're very educated and they're, they're very cultured and they, and, but man, you guys really
4: shot the put. Well, remember, we decided we didn't want to be there. So, you know, expertise and doing things properly and all of that, all, that all went out the window. Like you can't, you know, the weird thing is talking about the COVID response without talking about the Brexit response is really fucking difficult because it's all part right. of the same cultural shift in Britain. towards this kind of populist idea. I mean, this was, you know, I remember a few years ago, I would laugh at the notion that someone like Boris Johnson would ever become prime minister. It's like, come on, man, this is a serious country. You know, we're not a fucking clown car. We're not going to put, like, a guy like this, can't, he can't even dress himself, literally doesn't know how many children he has. We're not going to fucking put him in charge. And
1: Doesn't he know but won't say?
4: Well, yeah, th- but there's two theories, right? One of them is he knows and won't say, and the other one is he just doesn't even fucking know.
1: I mean, that is an amazing thing that you have a prime minister that... Cannot answer the question or will not answer the question, how many children do you have?
4: Yeah, you know what? The, the, the only good thing that might come out of Boris Johnson's administration is that because the right love him, right? So the, the right would just stick up with whatever the fuck he does. And because of that, what we've got is the sort of philandro, but he's someone with a girlfriend. He, he's not married to the woman that he's right. with. They've had a child now. So actually, hopefully, if one good thing can come out of this, it's that that kind of tedious old fashioned moralistic bullshit about you expect them to be married you know you expect this 2.4 conservative sort of family nuclear unit actually might have dissipated and we've become a little bit more french hopefully not to the full extent of you know everyone has to fuck everyone all the time but you know at least some of the time there's just a more relaxed attitude towards it
2: this is like how I always said I wanted an atheist president in America. That I got Donald mm. Trump.
4: Oh God, yeah, no, <laughs> the Bible was his was his, his second favorite book after his yeah, 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 yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, I don't think it's true that he wanted to be sworn in on Art of the Deal. But
2: hey, folks, if you haven't heard, every single week we do a special bonus episode for Beast Inside, the Daily Beast membership program. Sometimes we interview senators like Cory Booker or the folks who explain what's happening behind the scenes in media like Jim Acosta or Soledad O'Brien. Sometimes we just have fun and talk to our favorite comedians and actors like Busy Phillips or Billy Eichner. And sometimes we just have friends around to analyze what's happening in the news. You can get all of our episodes in your favorite podcast app of choice by becoming a Beast Inside member, where you'll support The Beast's fearless journalism, as well as getting full access to podcasts and articles. To become a member, head to newabnormal.thedailybeast.com. That's newabnormal.thedailybeast.com
0: better help
5: get it off your chest with better help visit betterhelp.com slash the new abnormal today to get 10 percent off your first month that's BetterHelp help com slash the new abnormal
2: sarah mark warner is the senior senator from virginia and joining us today for the interview as well is the daily beast spencer ackerman
1: hi senator warner
5: Hey, Molly, how are you?
1: I'm good. Thank you for joining us today.
5: My pleasure.
1: Very exciting. So I want to talk to you about 230. What is going on with 230 and why?
5: Remember, Section 230 was passed way back in the late 90s when there really wasn't any kind of social media. It was at the very beginnings of the Internet. And I was an old telecom guy, so in many ways, we kind of took the ideas around protecting telecom networks from being responsible for their content and put that kind of protection in place for these new message boards uh, and this, you know, these new companies that were beginning to pop up like YouTube and AOL and Twitter. And I think for a while it made a great deal of sense, but now we're 22 years, 23 years later and 65% of Americans get summer all their news off of just Facebook and Google and the idea that they bear no responsibility at all for anything that happens on their websites, particularly since they manipulate through the use of algorithms a whole lot of this content. They are clearly curated, but curated to, you know, if you're on the left, push you further left. Or if you're on the right, push you further right. And they've ended up being used, Section 230 not only to protect things like political content, but there was this wild case around the platform grinder where some guy met a guy on Grindr, they went out, they broke up, and then the spurned lover basically took on a false identity and said he was the other person and and invited all kinds of people to come and harass his spurned lover. And the poor guy's life turned to living hell as he got harassed at his apartment, harassed at work, and he tried to get Grindr to take down the other, take down this content. And grinder used Section 230 to protect itself. So it was just Section 230 has evolved into this thing that it, I don't think any of us anticipated. And so there's a bunch of different ideas, including an idea I have, about how we might put some uh, guardrails around it.
1: But isn't there a danger there that, like, I mean, it just feels like there's no, nobody totally understands. Like, are you for the idea of it, it being a publishing platform? or?
5: No, I'm not as far as saying we ought to, call Facebook or YouTube or Twitter, the New York Times or Fox News. I don't think we should get rid of all the protections. And I also think sometimes people get confused. There are First Amendment rights and I want to protect those First Amendment rights. You've got a right to say stupid stuff. But does that right mean you could also have a right to have your stupid comments amplified five billion times? I think that's a more of an open question. So what, what I did working with Maisie Hirano and Amy Klobuchar, was we really spent a lot of time saying, let's protect First Amendment rights, but let's clarify that Section 230 doesn't give you protections um, from some other basic laws that are already on the books. And we've already made some exceptions to Section 230. You can't do child pornography. You can't do sex trafficking. You can't do bomb making. So we said on, on our Section 230 reform, Let's still grant individual users First Amendment rights. But Facebook and YouTube and, and Twitter shouldn't have their Section 230 First Amendment protections go to advertising. If the advertising is inherently un, uh, lying and, and misrepresenting, you shouldn't be able to hide behind Section 230, number one. We said we sh- you shouldn't Section 230 protections shouldn't take away the ability to enforce civil rights laws. So if you're promoting discriminatory behavior, that ought to be able to still be enforced through existing civil rights laws. You should be able to get injunctive relief if you can prove to such a higher standard that going back, for example, the Grinder case, that somebody is personally harassing you on these platforms and you can get a court order to prohibit that harassment, that shouldn't be protected by Section 230, and we've also said that if you are, and this goes more to kind of the tort act, if you are can prove in a court again that you're causing bodily harm to an individual the way in Burma the government was using Facebook to incite violence against, violence against the Rohingya, um, you ought to be able to have that law enforced. So I think we've got a, a more moderate, nuanced position, but I know that that some of the defenders of the status quo have been pretty upset with our proposal. But I think that's a healthy debate.
6: I wanted to ask about the fallout to January 6th. Uh, There's a big debate underway about whether the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security require uh, new domestic terrorism powers, in particular, something on the akin of the Patriot Act aimed domestically to both list Uh, domestic terrorist groups and therefore create prohibitions against material that is financial and other support of them.
5: Where do you stand on that? Well, first of all, I think the rise of anti-government extremists has been going on in this country for the last couple of years. And I think the FBI and others have recognized that, but the, the previous White House basically didn't want that emphasis to be made that public. And I think that's a real, a real problem. I'm not sure what new tools need to be used. I wanna make sure people have got a right to protest, have got a right to, again, not have their basic freedoms impinged upon. And I don't, I'm not sure what new tools ought to be used yet. That's why I'm taking the Intelligence Committee and we're going to do a deep dive on this anti-government extremism, and particularly some some of these groups, their ties to right-wing groups in in Europe, oftentimes amplified by Russia. So, Spencer, I'm, I I got to sort through this and figure this out as well. I know the threat is real. I know it's not just in this country. If you look, you know, if you look at countries like Hungary and Poland, you've seen the anti-government extremists become the government and become very anti-democratic. Part of the problem may be just solved within are existing tools if the FBI and other government agencies can actually continue to help educate the public and elected leaders are willing to acknowledge that this threat exists. The previous administrations just didn't want to hear this stuff.
6: Sure, are the FBI or any of your other security sector interlocutors actually asking Congress for new authorities? Because I
5: haven't seen that happen. Yeah, I don't think they've asked yet. I think we're so much at just the early stages. How did this happen? How extensive are these networks? What else are they working on? And there is some interconnection, obviously, between, especially what you're talking about here and what Molly talked about in terms of the social media platforms, because a lot of this organizing is obviously going on on the web and on these platforms.
6: And I'm glad you mentioned the Senate Intelligence Committee investigation on this. I imagine it's been sort of too short a time period for you guys to have come to any you know, initial investigative findings. Is that the case, or, or are you starting to to see something? Do you have cooperation from anyone you might have interviewed already, or or is this all premature at this point?
5: Yeah, it's way premature. Got it. We, you know, one of the things I want to try to do is again. I'm really proud of our Senate Intel Committee. You know, we've been bipartisan. We we stayed bipartisan through the whole Russia investigation, and part of the first step here is to kind of sit down with members on both sides and really scope the problem and scope the problem in a way that this is not just an attempt to kind of go after the MAGA universe, you know, or this is not an attempt to simply take on the Donald Trump crowd. This is a much bigger, graver threat. And if we can get, all get on there, most of us get on the same page about the nature of the threat. And then I think we can ask those kind of questions that you're asking, Spencer, but we're, we're not there yet.
6: Do you think you can get there? You you did mention how bipartisan the committee was able to operate during the Russia investigation which must have been uh, a really Herculean effort, but this seems something, you know, more incendiary given that this was, you know, an insurrection by the president's supporters cheered on by some of your colleagues. Do you think you can actually keep this as a bipartisan investigation? And are you worried that in keeping it as a bipartisan investigation, you jeopardize the scope of what you're trying to find out?
5: Well, I'm going to do my damnedest because I I really think the seal of approval we can put on something that it's bipartisan. I think, you know, we claimed at times that we're the last functioning bipartisan committee on the Hill, and that's a low bar to get over. So it's, you know, I, I don't want to lose that moniker. And I think there is some value that we bring to this because, some of the sessions that we'll have will be behind closed doors. You know, there will be our intelligence community coming in and briefing us. And that decreases the amount of political posturing. And if we can kind of come to some common agreement, hey, this is a real problem. It's not just a real problem in this country. It's a real problem happening around Western democracies everywhere. How do we get our hands around it? I think we got a much better shot of, of coming to You know, coming to those bipartisan conclusions, but I got no idea how long this is going to take, and we're still at the at the stages of trying to get, oftentimes, academic expertise because there's there has been some expertise, obviously, within the the FBI, but I do think under the Trump administration, uh, these efforts were um, were a little bit undermined. I mean, there just was not. You know, Chris Ray has said. A couple of times when we used to still have the uh, uh, the intelligence threat assessments, uh, he raised this point uh, about anti-government extremists. But that last White House didn't want to hear those stories.
1: Have you seen stuff that we, the public, haven't seen that you feel should be released?
5: Molly, not yet. I expect that I will because I, I am I'm still with just the. The starting stages, I'm, you know.
1: But even with the Russia stuff, you have you seen?
5: Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yes. Of course, with the Russia stuff, we we have um, seen things that haven't been fully declassified yet. That I'd love to still see declassified. But we didn't get as much attention on some of the volumes that we released. But when we we showed with great detail the manipulation on social media, we showed with great detail all the different ways that Russia took selected information that they'd hacked into and. And um, released during the midst of the 2016 campaign, you know, we were obviously this was the hottest topic the first couple of years of the Trump administration. I think the public had kind of moved on by the time we got our final reports out. But I think history will treat our five volumes as uh, the most far more than the most definitive um, statements on what Russia's uh, goals were and how they um, basically screwed with us in major ways back in 2016 and beyond.
1: Thank you so much.
5: Thank you, guys. Sorry I was late. Let's do it again sometime. We can go longer.
2: Tommy Marcus, a.k.a. Quentin Quarantino, is a meme maker who just raised $1.1 million for Planned Parenthood as a reaction to Rush Limbaugh's death, and today he's going to tell us the story around that.
1: So I don't often have relatives on the show, but I'm pretty excited to have you on the show, Tommy. Can you explain who you are, who your other personality is?
7: Would my other personality be Quentin Quarantino or Tommy Marcus?
1: <laughs> yes. Tell us about your alt- your Instagram personality.
7: Okay. Um, so I started this Instagram page, Quentin Quarantino, the first day that everything shut down in New York, which I believe was March 13th, 2020. Can't believe we're coming up on a year on that now. But uh, it started off as, as kind of a, a humorous account of just staying at home while we all thought that you know, the pandemic was going to, to last a month. And it was just really kind of a lighthearted jokes page about, you know, how I was feeding myself off of canned chef Boyardee and and not leaving my apartment and wearing sweatpants and stuff. And then, you know, as, as time went on, things got a lot more political as it as it related to the pandemic. And, and slowly I, I morphed the account into a political, account where, yeah, it's 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 been this crazy journey where I really didn't know what I was getting into when I started the page. I've always been a, a, an incredibly re- political person. I almost said religious, <laughs> uh, but it's been really incredible to kind of use my platform to really confront misinformation and turn negativity into humor and I guess with my latest stunt, kind of, I've been kind of calling it trolling for good. I think that I really have hit a sweet spot in which I'm not, you know, spewing the same polarizing hate as the other side. I'm really, I'm really trying to bring people together uh, who follow me and kind of combine on on a mission to really just first make people who might not be aware of things aware of it, but then also make them laugh and make their days better. And I think I've found a really good blend uh, of that over, over time.
1: So let's talk about what you've done, which is pretty exciting. You started a fundraiser in the name of Rush Limbaugh and the money went to Planned Parenthood. And you raised a million dollars.
7: Yeah, as as uh, as of the time that we're speaking, it's at, I, I believe, $1.17 million from 45,000 wow. donors. And um, I'm still trying to process everything that's happened uh, because I, I set off with a, a $10,000 goal. And the whole fundraising aspect on Instagram is a brand new feature that I had just noticed. The original joke was just that I had donated $100 to Planned Parenthood on on their website. And when I was going to post it on Instagram, I saw this brand new feature called fundraising on, on posts. And I was like, all right, why not? Let's, let's add a fundraiser for Planned Parenthood, set a $10,000 goal. It would be so funny if I was able to somehow raise $10,000 for Planned Parenthood in spite of Rush Limbaugh. And you know, 10 minutes in, it was at $1,500. And I was starting to realize like, whoa, this might have potential for a lot more than $10,000. And now we're sitting here talking and it's over $1.1 million and, and still going. It's really been crazy. I, 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 the, the amount of money and and i guess the the actual impact that this money is going to have is still something that i'm i guess trying to wrap my brain around because it's just such an insane thing to think about that what started off as as kind of a a joke has turned into such a a positive and and almost unifying thing based on the messages that i've received from followers really heartfelt messages about how this fundraiser has really kind of Boosted their past week, and and that it's been what they've been looking forward to, and constantly checking the numbers and all of this stuff. And it's just, it's, it's really just unbelievable to me. Everything has happened so fast. We hit a million dollars in three days, and yeah, I'm just, I'm still kind of in shock. And it's just been, it's been a really beautiful thing to to be a part of. There's forty five thousand people as of right now who have donated to this. And that's that's just an unbelievable amount of people. The, the average donation is, is somewhere around $24. And we have been able to raise over a million dollars for Planned Parenthood, which which I would say is probably one of the most necessary and specifically most unfairly politicized and, and unfairly demonized organizations in this country. So yeah, it's, it's just been absolutely crazy.
1: Is it okay to speak ill of the dead?
7: <laughs> that is a great question, Molly. And
1: I don't know. I mean, that's a really a just a question. You know, I'm not sure where I'd come down on it. When
7: I first got the notification that Rush died, um, you know, Rush Limbaugh has always been a person that I've kind of had in my mind as, as one of, I guess, the worst people in America. Um, yeah. He's just yeah. spent three decades really... Pretty in my fair. mind, I think he's really, in my mind, kind of brainwashed an entire generation and really spent decades spewing hatred out onto the airwaves, whether it be anti-feminist where he refers to feminists as feminazis or or yeah. is is making fun of deceased AIDS victims and then is and, and and people of color and, and there's really just no marginalized community that you could pick that Rush Limbaugh didn't spend a significant amount of his time insulting, degrading, and brainwashing people about.
1: Against, yeah. No, I agree. So
7: to answer your question, you know, it kind of started off as me Joking about a a dead man. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, some people were saying, like, I usually love your stuff, but this is a little far. He just died. Think of his family, etc. But, you know, when you have such a public figure who, in my mind, really kind of is one of the main catalysts for Trump's America, I I, I really I really think that. I really think that he has had such a such a major role in in building up America into what it became in 2016 when Donald Trump was yeah. elected, that I didn't feel bad at all kind of making fun of the fact that he had died. And, and and with the fundraiser, I was kind of able to turn the hatred and the, you know, the kind of objectively negative thing of laughing at someone who just died into something that was actually productive and and something, I guess I would say, intensely good, you know?
1: Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, you know, it is the question that we all must ask all the time. You know, I don't have an a, opinion of it, but I definitely think that there are few people have really been as horrible and bad for the world as Rush Limbaugh, which, of course, is why Trump celebrates him.
7: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Hi, Jesse Cannon.
2: Hi, Molly. So today we have a extra special themed edition of Fuck That Guy. Ah! <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so if people do not follow you on Instagram, they may still know that you have the most adorable rescue you Leonidas, and they definitely do not know that I have a rescue pup, Violet, that I'm an uncle to that is the light of my life.
1: Yes, Jesse and I are committed dog owners, and uh, I actually have three dogs, Spartacus, Cerberus, and rescue puppy Leonidas.
2: But, you know, the most disgusting thing always with these Trump people is that nothing is out of bounds in the culture war. And somehow, Newsmax's Greg Kelly found a way to insult Joe Biden's totally cute rescue pup.
1: Right. That's right. Joe Biden has one rescue dog, one breeder dog. And they're both German Shepherds, and uh, Greg Kelly, you may know him as sort of, he's like a kind of Sean Hannity wannabe (laughs) on Newsmax, he's Sean Hannity without the hair. He had deemed this rescue dog not rescue enough, because he was from a non-kill shelter. And you know, only dogs from kill shelters count as rescue dogs. That's not true. That's completely nuts. And that he was also um, not that cute. And well, he had a lot of not, complaints not, not, not about about, that dog. Not to
2: the standards of the of White House, apparently. Dogs.
1: I mean, I would note that the last president did not have a dog.
2: Yes. and What I would also note is. That dog is adorable. Every time I see it, it puts a smile on my face.
1: Yes, it's a very adorable dog, and also it's a fucking dog.
2: <laughs> yes, that—that that, that is the real thing, is that, you know, I, it'd be really nice to ha- have there be some boundaries... But we also want to take this to another place, which is fuck you, Ted Cruz, for leaving Snowflake all alone while you went to Cancun.
1: Well, we don't know what happened with Ted Cruz because we don't know because that security guard said he was taking care of Snowflake, the tiny white poodle who was photographed standing in front of the open door in the Cruz house. Uh, Not open, but in front of a sort of glass-paned door Uh, in the Cruz household.
2: In that case, can I just – then maybe I'll I'll rephrase – my fuck that guy for Ted Cruz, right? this. What I'll say is fuck you for naming it Snowflake because you know all day he's asking Snowflake if it's triggered that he's not giving it treats and things like that. So just <laughs> fuck him for that. <laughs> On that note, we'll wrap this episode of the new abnormal from the Daily Beast. In future episodes, we'll be talking to smart folks from the Daily Beast and beyond from media, culture, politics, and science who will help us understand what's happening to our country and the world. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and share the show on social media. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again on the next episode.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with quins.